If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Nurse Wellness Podcast, hosted by Wendy Garvin Mayo, focuses on the power of stress management and how it's foundational to being your best, doing your best, and giving your best. There's a wonderful episode that you should check out called Letting Go, where Wendy Garvin Mayo shares six strategies to release control and manage stress effectively. Check out Nurse Wellness Podcast on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. This is episode 101 of the podcast. If you're a new listener, I want to welcome you. Highway to Health is your place for trusted health guidance and resource. Whether you're looking to improve your health or just seeking ways to stay well, we're here for you. This growing community is on a mission to improve our state of being and experience together on the planet. And if you love the thoughtful and informative content you get here, maybe it's time to consider becoming a health amplifier today. You can support this community over at patreon.com forward slash highway to health. Every dollar goes towards the development of resource and a more integrative approach to care. Thanks for your support. And thanks for all the nice messages last week from Dr. Aaron's interview with me. Apparently a few surprises in there about my journey. So grateful to all of you. My guest for today, Nikki Kenward, joins me from just outside of London to discuss her recent book, It's All in Your Gut, Let Your Second Brain Guide You to Optimal Health. 2,500 years ago, Hippocrates, the ancient Greek physician, told us that all disease starts in the gut. Over the past 25 years, science and research has begun to prove this ancient wisdom and given real insight into the intelligence of the gut as we now know more about its specialized cells like glia that also exist in the brain. With polyvagal theory, we've also come to understand the complex dialogue between the brain and the gut. I did a series of short episodes a couple years back about the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems, known to many as our fight-or-flight and rest-digest systems, and how they respond to our internal and external environments. Check those out if you'd like to learn more. There's a third aspect to this system, the enteric nervous system, that I've been waiting to have an expert on to explain better than I can. And I'm very fortunate to have Nikki here to share her insights into this amazing system, as well as practical ways to help heal the gut, and while doing so, improve our mental and emotional states. Having both been trained through the Upledger Institute, we discuss ways we work with this system through craniosacral therapy, including an approach developed by Dr. John Upledger, which he called somato-emotional release, or SER for short. We share our experiences with this work, as well as its effectiveness in facilitating the release of trauma held in the tissues of the body through this gentle manual therapy. Please enjoy my conversation with Nikki Kenworth. So I have to say, one of the things that really drew me in right away to the book was that you and I have this shared experience, which is probably why I liked you so much the first time I met you. <laughs> I, oh, really? I I also have a, uh, grew, you know, grew up not knowing who my biological father was. Oh, wow. That's interesting because we definitely, on a deeper level, we we know, don't we, about the other person? Yeah, yeah. And and it, and just that you shared so much of that experience, it brought it was almost like me kind of getting into doing some work for myself during the reading of the book, which is what it felt like you were kind of doing writing the book. Yeah, yeah, that and that also is interesting because um, I've had um, quite a lot of emails from people who've read the book, who have 
even said, oh, on this particular page, that that thing you were talking about resonated with me and that's really helped me with my process. Yeah. And that was the whole point of writing it through my story was to um, show to show people they're not alone and right. to endeavor to to um, make that connection with readers yeah. so that they could process things. And I've had emails from people saying, oh, I've been in therapy for years, but when I read that page, I cried and I realized this and I felt somebody out there knew what that was like. Yeah, yeah. So that was unexpected and interesting, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit. Uh, I, w- I want to get into your background too, but I'm curious to, uh, just because... For one, I'm 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 you know giving some consideration to writing something. I was an English major. I went to a writing program after college and thought that uh-huh. was the direction I was going. I was a musician. I was writing, you know, lyrics and working on songs with people. Um, but I'm just curious about your process. It, it felt like you were really sort of telling us what the scene was in in each of the in each place you were writing the book, sort of where you were at personally in that in that moment. Yes. And I, so, again, I think for me, in order to engage people who were reading, it felt that it would help to be in that moment yeah. and to be very present there, just as you would be with a client in your clinic. Right. You are in that moment. And I think the other thing is, I mean, I'm glad you picked that up, actually, because I love writing descriptively. Mm. And um, I was inspired to write as a child by reading um, Laurie Lee's book, Cider with Rosie. Mm-hmm. I'm familiar with that. And it was just the way it was written, I could smell and taste and see everything that was being described. And that had a huge impact on me. And I loved writing from that moment on, although I was a dance major. But I did English Lit um, for A-level, and I've always written in some form. But yeah, I think part of that is the engagement. And that runs through everything that I, I do. It runs through my theatre work that I did in the past, and I'm getting back into It's that showing where you are in that moment. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I thought a little bit about just how there's something about having, you know, wanting to process these ex- these experiences and you know f- mine were actually nothing quite like yours i mean you know we 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 both may have this sort of common commonality but but you know th- there was a lot more extreme things going on for you but but that being said i, I you know and and i want to get into some of the kind of the epigenetics of of how we may be carrying forward some of these things but i think there's a, there's a there's something in this creative process and, and just being around creatives my entire life I, I have the sense that there's a process going on through creativity that leads, it's almost kind of like changing what that story is, which is very similar to some of the work that we do in SER work too. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that the one thing that first came up to me when you started talking about that was the idea of community and that um, we heal better in community and in the right mm-hmm. space. Yeah, yeah. Or we process better in that. And I've always thought that about the Upledger intensive programs. You know, you have all these different communities. You have the big community of the therapists in the big room all together with their clients. And then you have the small community of the um, 
to uplift a therapist and the person on the table, creating their own space within the bigger community. And then you have another community because they have a breakout room, which is just for the um, clients where nobody else is allowed to go. So they have their own community. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's, there's something about that that is a really creative place to be. Yeah. And I I think it it was one of the things that helped me in my process was that I was used to a certain amount of vulnerability, you know, in terms of like doing my own self-work. And and I feel like a lot of what you're talking about in this this book is about that self-work process. Um, But that's a, that even with the experience that I had, I, you know, the, the first SER course I had, I had a hard time going there. You know, it's it's hard to be in in that vulnerable place, on a table with other people, and you and you talk a little bit about that safety, sort of in, in you know as yeah. as being the most crucial part of of the, you know, the progress, the, the 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 way forward with with most with most healing. I think that's right. I think safety's um, an absolute bottom line center to everything that goes on with us. And that is reflected in all aspects of our central and autonomic, every part of our nervous system, enteric nervous system. So we're always um, wondering moment by moment on some level how safe we are. And um, yeah, I think that's very important. I mean, for me, I did the upledger training and it wasn't until I got nearly to the end of my advance one that I actually had any kind of process. And it took four other really grounded therapists hanging on to me for hours. (laughs) Yeah. And then on some level, I must have felt safe enough because I wanted to go there before, but just found it impossible. Can you share anything, any of your story, any of your, any of your first SER? Yeah. So I was on my advanced one and I think it was Thursday. So we'd already done, that was my fourth day. And we, You know, we have these intense two-hour sessions with four other people working on us generally every day. And and I just remember suddenly getting these different sensations in my body, which I'd never felt before. So they were all pretty much hanging on to my sacrum, the bottom of my spine. And then I started to feel restricted around my ribs. And then it was just absolutely classic. I had... um, um, a very strong memory, visual memory in my mind of standing beside, this is described in the book, beside the bed of the man I thought was my father, who was very ill, and watching him die. And he was hooked up to all these machines. And um, all you could hear in the room were the sound of the machines. And I remember standing there and then wrapped up in that was the not being allowed to feel anything Mm -hmm. in that situation. So I was feeling a lot and overwhelmed, but also had to keep all of that in. And there was this huge restrictive feeling all around my body and, and, and pain in my spine. And, and that all just came back as clear as day. And, 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 so and remember, that, there's, there's barely any pressure being applied at all. I mean, that's the one thing for the somato-emotional release work that we do. We're still using yeah. this very light, you know, five grams of, of pressure. It was extraordinary. This tissue memory was extraordinary. Yeah. And they were just four really patient, 
grounded people who by the fourth day had obviously convinced me with their hands that I wasn't safe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, and then I just cried torrents and I actually mourned and grieved for him in that moment. Well, and for about half an hour, I just cried. Yeah. And I'd never been able to do that. And I'd always had chronic back pain, which then went. Hmm. And and how old were you when you when you started doing this work? Um, so that I was probably about forty two. Okay, yeah, yeah, and and I you know my 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 first one I would say wasn't a full you know I think I had what what you know some unwinding going on, and sure. I and I kind of wanted to get to that place where I could let go more, but my you know as as you know what it looks like on the table sometimes there will be a little involuntary movement sometimes that happened, and for for me it was around my neck and my throat and. And I was starting to kind of move around a, a little bit and it felt uncomfortable, but it also felt like the person whose hands were there were so kind of supporting me to go into a, to a place and I just stayed there for a while. And then all of a sudden another movement went to another place. The most profound one for me, though, was was going back through some a childhood experience that I had had. And it's similar to some of the things that you talked about in the book as you kind of start out some of these chapters with a memory I yeah. had I had a I had a session like that where I basically went through, you know, age two or three to mm-hmm. to age eight, and then somewhere in my teen years, all within the, the you know the probably twenty five minutes, you know, but yeah. really really intensely, and and I and you know the the experience on the table is, I am that person, I am I am yeah. that I am that version of me, which is yeah. which is also you know the, the, this gets into some of the the processing. Of of how this stuff kind of stays stays in the cells or in the tissue or however we want to talk about this because Absolutely. it's it, it, yeah, there, it's there is a memory that's that's still there and in the body in a way. Yeah, quite extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. And and yet the way the somato emotional release process is done is is a very safe, gentle, and respectful way, which I think is why I love this work. Because it will never poke and prod somebody to make this happen. It will support the experience if it's the right time for that to happen. Right. And that person is always has some control over what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, That's- should should really be in control of this of this yeah. of this process, which is something that I that I really love about uh, uh, what Upledger developed in in this approach because. So many times, and, and I get I get so many people on my table who have who have been to you know healers of some sort, who have who have kind of spoken the the truth for them, and you know some yeah. of it may be maybe very you know very well intentioned, and and you know we we all have some level of, of intuition about what's going on with with another person, but that's one of those things where that's not what we're we're there to do for people, and I've had people tell me you know ask me to tell them what their problem is you know yeah, yeah and and we and we want and on some level we want that and so there are some people who become the guru and want to and but then then it becomes this power dynamic and yeah and ultimately that's really disempowering of the person on the table right right so so what was your what was your background before you got into doing craniosacral therapy so I, my uh, first degree was in dance. I did um, an honours degree in dance at the Laban Centre, which is a big centre for contemporary dance in London. Okay. And I'd always loved dance. I'd done ballet from the age of about three. And um, so I loved that. And so it was a vocational training. 
but also an academic degree. So we studied aesthetics and history of dance and movement analysis and all Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff too. So with that, I danced, I choreographed, and I worked with the Royal Opera House um, doing lecture presentations and also London Festival Ballet. So I did a range of, of different things. Yeah. And 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 did you have a uh, a, a health um, degree in any way before you got into doing this, or how how did you get led to this work? Well, no, I didn't have any kind of health degree. Um, but quite quickly, as I started exploring all the different things I could do in dance, I realized I was really interested in how people's process uh, was manifest through their movement. And their dance, so when I'm choreographing with mm-hmm. somebody or when I'm working on myself or whether I was working in the community, I began to notice this big mind-body thing going on with the movement and yeah. dance. Yeah. So I um, began to work then much more as a dance therapist in a way. So I'd work with older people, people with mental health problems mm. in prisons with young offenders. For four years, I worked with young male offenders Wow. as a dance artist. And um, yeah, so all of that became much more interesting to me than performing. Was was there anything in, in that work when you were working with offenders that was similar to now what you've experienced doing, you know, more clinical craniosacral work on a, on a table? Well, I think the similarity has to be safety. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had to be a very grounded... Um, space holder I mean I would only have the maximum would be five in a class because of the nature of the um, seems like a lot (laughs) (laughs) that was kind of enough yeah and um and I learned very quickly that I had to meet them where they were without an agenda Mm-hmm. So, you know, the first session I'd go in with all these ideas about how I was going to warm them up and I was going to teach them this and teach them that. And I made it very clear that none of that was going to happen. Uh, they weren't they were not groups that you could um, that would be compliant <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in any way, shape or form. And most of them had got there through the path of some kind of sexual or violent abuse at home. They'd ended up in care or in hostels, and then as about it's a very short journey to be a, a young offender from that moment on. Yeah. Um, so I learned that I had to start where they were. So that's exactly what we do. So then I would ask them to bring their music in and show me their dance and teach me their dance steps. And then I would expand that with some of my ideas. So well, what about if we did this? Yeah. Well, how about putting in a lift? And at first, the idea of lifts, which are big in contemporary dance, mm-hmm. they were horrified because they never trusted anybody in their lives and didn't really trust each other either yeah. to actually be lifted up and, and to trust that person isn't going to drop them. Yeah. So that took a long time. and then, But it was so interesting because eventually I would – they would feel safe enough. I'd teach them some lifts. And once they did it, they enjoyed that experience of safety and trust so much. They wanted to do them all the time. Yeah, and that's that's really interesting because it, it is there there is there is something about that process. And I see this with people 
who have lost confidence in their in their own in their own bodies in their own in their own ability to heal themselves you know then that's the one of the yeah. things kind of going back to this you know this idea of the healer i think there it's very strong in this alternative health world to think of oneself as as the healer for somebody else or for somebody who's looking for healing to to be looking for a yeah. healer right instead instead of thinking yeah. about themselves as the healer but in yeah. but in this situation where you know these these people are learning you know they're you know to to trust themselves and their own instincts into who they can trust and that kind of thing too it's like a, a big part of a healing process absolutely and um i mean that's one of the big things wasn't it from dr john up ledger was the person on the table is the healer mm-hmm. we're the assistant yeah and we're there to support and activate their healing processes on every level yeah. as appropriate. And as as decreed by their inner physician, their biological wisdom, not by us. Yeah. And I just think that's magical. So was your interest coming from getting work done in the first place? Um, getting getting someone from Upledger to do craniosacral work on you, or did you or did you just take a course and because you were you were interested? It was completely random, which is actually not like me. Uh. I'm, I'm more of a let's write down the pros and cons person. <laughs> <laughs> or at least do it in my mind. But I had, um, I, I began, so at the time when I started training, I was artistic director of a company I created of adults with learning difficulties. And we were Arts Council funded. Um, that was a very stressful situation trying to maintain that. Mm-hmm. And so I began to train along the side. So I did a, a simple AMP course and I studied reflexology. And I thought that's really interesting, but yeah. I'd like to do something more that I can get my teeth into. And it was completely random. I just looked on the back of a health magazine and saw an advert for craniosacral therapy training. And it, the way it described it, I thought, oh, I think I'll do that. I'd, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. And I'd never had any myself, ever. And so in two weeks, I did my first module. And I just fell in love with it yeah. in the way that I am still in love with dance and theatre. Yeah. And, um, and the rest, as they say, is history. So then I just went through the training and became an instructor for Upledger and then eventually began writing classes and yeah. And, and so your, your, your work, you know, with the the kind of the understanding of the enteric system, um, which is really, there's, I mean, there's so much new stuff that's that, I mean, this, this is really, I would say last 20 years, but especially last 10 years, it was my interest as well. Although I, I, I learned it more from this kind of sympathetic parasympathetic point of view and I've covered yeah. it on the podcast a little bit in some, I've, I've done a couple of short episodes if anyone wants to learn about that in, in particular. I do it in a couple of two-minute episodes, basically learning what this sympathetic and, and parasympathetic looks like. And I've been waiting for someone like you, actually, <laughs> to explain the enteric system in a, in a way that that that's only someone who's been, I think, through the, you know, through the challenges of gut-related things can can even explain to to the level that I think you have in this book. So, so for anybody who doesn't understand, um, can you explain the the autonomic nervous system briefly, and then, and then what this what this new understanding is of the enteric system? 
Absolutely. So I think most people will have um, maybe a basic understanding of their autonomic nervous system. A lot of people know about being in fight and flight, which is our sympathetic arm of the autonomic nervous system. And it's very useful when we want to run away or fight um, if a tiger jumps into the room, for example. Yeah. but obviously, if we're in fight and flight, a lot of the time it's not so good because it usually means we're really stressed and it's and it creates uses, and it uses a ton of ton of energy. Yeah, it uses loads of energy, creates inflammation in the body. It becomes our default, so that we're always on edge and ah. Yeah. Um, but the op- the um, balance to that, the other part of the autonomic system, is the parasympathetic system, which is our you know, the classic way of describing it is rest and digest. Mm -hmm. So that's the part of us which can switch off, conserve energy, allow our digestive system to work as a clue there. And um, in an ideal world, we have access to both and both function well at the right time. Mm -hmm. So when I want to switch off, I can sleep, I can digest my food without difficulty When I need to run or to fight, I also have access to that. Uh So it's they're they're all a little bit of a continuum, you know. They're not you know this already. They're not really in two separate boxes, and there's always a kind of flow going on. And an ideal healthy person, we're able to flow into the right state. And and, and when one goes, when one one kind of kicks into gear, the other one comes down, right? I mean, in terms of response. So so, so there is a kind of balancing act. The problem ends up being, right, when we have this, when we're in this fight or flight or, or freeze mode, if it's well, if if it becomes pattern and becomes you know up in the mix often enough, it also it makes the other side almost kind of weak in in terms of definitely. Uh, it's, it, so one side becomes dominant and the other side can't quite you know come up to match when it's needed. And it's really hard then to access the weaker side. And of course, if we're in fight and flight and we become completely overwhelmed, then we go as you say into freeze. Yeah. And when we go into freeze, interestingly, it's the parasympathetic parasympathetic spikes so that's the the even harder to get out of state when we tend to dissociate we cut off we withdraw we don't want any stimulation we can't be talked out or or, um we can't have we can't be hugged out of that we can't be talked out of that we usually need time and space and some support and the only way out of that spike of the parasympathetic and the freeze state is to go through the fight and flight yeah. back into a more balanced state. So um, this is really where the gut comes in because the enteric nervous system and our gut generally often seems to be really impacted by the freeze mode as well as the fight and flight. Mm-hmm. And in my own experience, and a lot of people I've worked with and people I've read about, um, studies and so on, we can be quite disconnected from the emotional history in our gut. And it can be quite um, a challenge to access it. I found this for myself. Mm -hmm. And I found this with a lot of people who came into my clinic, which was part of the driver for me to research more, write a class, write a book. Mm-hmm. But why is this so hard? Why can't I 
grasp what seemed like a jellyfish on the shore to um, see what's going on. And yet, you know, so many people were coming with ongoing gut issues that nobody seemed to be able to help. Yeah. And and they couldn't quite get into it. So, yeah, that was a real driver. And, and that, of course, I realized then was because we dissociate so much in there. Yeah. And, and one of the things that you said in the book that it really hit home with me, too, is that people who have a history of trauma, especially childhood trauma, because a lot of patterning starts there in terms of our development, yeah. is that... And 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 possibly even before, and then we'll get into that in a second with the epigenetic part of it. But, but that that they have a different uh, microbiome than someone who hasn't had that experience. Yeah, absolutely. Or well, they'll have a different most things in a way. Yeah, true. True. Um, so if you only have to look at the ACE study, the Adverse Childhood Experience study, and the books that have come out of that childhood disrupted mm-hmm. um, the deepest well, for example two really useful books. And and what came out of the ACE study, which was huge, done with like 17,000 people, and it's ongoing, I think, the work from that, is that the one thing that impacts us most through our whole lives in terms of our mental and physical health is our earlier experience. Mm-hmm. And we know for sure that that has a really negative impact on our microbiome as well as, of course, the patterning in our nervous system. And that then gets really tied up with the the new understanding of trauma through polyvagal theory. Yeah. We now come into that and realize that you've got the autonomic system with sympathetic, parasympathetic, and the freeze option as well, the enteric um, system responding very quickly to all of that and hanging on to a lot of stuff in freeze. But also now we realize that the vagus nerve, which is a big part of the parasympathetic system, um, is more complicated than that, that it has at least two aspects to it. And and so if we're a child who's going through trauma, one of those aspects, the ventral vagal complex, the ventral part of it, which is um, pretty much above the um, diaphragm, so it's all the way we engage with people, the way we feel safe, the way we talk, connect. All of that is not developed. We don't get that vagal tone of that part of the vagus nerve. And that has a huge impact on the patterning, as you said, has a huge impact on our gut, the microbiome. And that doesn't, I don't want that to sound like a prophecy of doom, because there's so much we can do right, to create right. and grow from that. And we have an opportunity to get that part of our nervous system toned up with helpful adults or some therapy or different situations that we're lucky enough to find ourselves in. Yeah. That can all be developed. But yeah, it's it's the biggest thing that's going to impact is impact us is the early experience. And, and, and so just for anyone who doesn't have uh, much of a background with understanding of the, of the vagus nerve and, yeah. and, and, and really some of the, the language that's starting to be used around the, the gut being the second brain is that yeah. there is basically a, you know, a, a, a line of communication going back and forth between the two. And we even have 
uh, specific types of glia, which I've talked about on the podcast. So we can mm-hmm. go, go to ta- go to Tad Wanvier's uh, podcast yeah. if you want to learn about yeah, glia. Yeah, Tad's a great friend of mine. And so you know, to so but polyvagal theory, which is Porges um, and his and his research, mm-hmm. is is kind of opening up an idea that and which makes sense to me that. Everything is more dynamic than we like to. Th- we 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 love to have something be sort of black and white and cut and clear. Mm-hmm. And there's one there's one line of communication, and that's it. Yeah. But we we know there's a lot more going on than that. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, yeah, because when I started to read about polyvagal theory and and try and work that into my understanding of the enteric nervous system, the second brain and all the messaging with the gut-brain axis and then the gut-brain microbiome axis, my head, I thought I was going to explode. (laughs) I am never going to get my head around this. But then I realized, then I had a sort of ping light bulb moment that, in fact, that was a good thing because if you think about having a holistic approach in the real sense of the word, in Mm -hmm. that we are all unique beings with all these different histories um, which impact on every cell and all our physiology, all the patterning in our nervous systems, we can't possibly work things out in that simplistic way for anybody. It's just not going to be possible. And the more research that's done, the more we realize it isn't possible. But what it does mean is that if we look at it that way, we have this wonderful... um, I almost see it like a fluid plastic um, being that is going to respond to the environment, to the people, to the thoughts, the words, to everything going on around us. So it also gives us a great deal of um, hope, I think, because things aren't simple and they do influence each other and they are influenced all the time by what we think and what we do. And what happens to us? Does yeah. that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I just uh, did a. I don't know if you've read this book yet, but I just did a podcast with uh, Dr. John Leaf. He wrote a book recently called um, "The Secret Language of Cells." So we, oh, so we, no, it has. It's not. It hasn't posted yet, but it should be up shortly. But it is. It's a. It's a fascinating. You know, to to what you're talking about here. To understand all these different communication systems, and and also who is who is doing the listening? You know, a lot of his research is where does the mind exist? Uh, and in one of the, his 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 book that he's in the middle of working on right now is where does the mind exist in nature? So that you know, take it outside of the body and know that that there's this communication you know network going on all over the place that is influencing ourselves. It's not just the inside the one container. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think this fluid plastic thing I'm talking about, which is us, is also, you know, part of the fluidity of the universe around us. Right, right. So we respond to that always in every way onto a cellular level, but we also influence that all the time. So it becomes a complete moving responsive system. Yeah. And, and Dr. John, I always remember him saying to me once that he, he felt there were, I was really lucky to meet him a number of times and to do some studying with him mm-hmm. in the early years of my training, that there was awareness and intelligence in all ourselves. Mm-hmm. So he would say our mind is everywhere. Yeah. 
which I, I agreed with. Yeah, me too. And and so the, and so in, in a way, this this brings us back around to to our fathers who we never met. And and you know, yeah. and one of the interesting things in reading this book is that my mom was also adopted. And so, oh, okay. you know, we have we have sort of a, a few layers here of things where, you know, one of one of your awarenesses is, you know, that you're you're coming to is learning, you know, and learning about this this father that you didn't meet, was knowing a little bit of his history and and knowing a little bit of the trauma that he came from, during the war and stuff, and and so, mm-hmm. you know, th- this brings it back around to to kind of understanding the way we we pass on this epigenetic, you know, information. I, 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 you yep. mentioned it in the book, but I, I worked in, uh, and still work in New York uh, for about 20 some years. And I've worked with a lot of, a lot of Jews who's, who, you know, came from Holocaust survivor families. They could be, you know, one or two uh, generations removed. And yeah. you, you, you mentioned it in the book that there's, a, that, you know, we, we know just from research and from, and from tracking this now that there's a lot of anxiety, depression, and a lot of chronic mm-hmm. illness that's passed on. A lot of a lot of those survivors were kind of in freeze, um, and so they, yeah. they they were they weren't able to be emotionally present in a lot of ways. And the way that that passes on, you know, generation to generation becomes kind of a a, a thing yeah. that has to be kind of worked through. Absolutely, and I, I think yeah, thinking about my own story, I felt very strongly that from I had so much of him in me, even though I never met him mm-hmm. or I learned. Partly some of the trauma I know influenced me, but also all the the, the positive aspects of him, his right. creativity, his courage, his determination. He was the most decorated airman, I think, Polish airman in the war. And so I know I've, I've had a lot from him, mm-hmm. some of it um, better than others, maybe, but... Yeah, but fortunately, found myself in a situation where I could work with that yeah. and become aware of that. But in fact, it's interesting because that's the the poem at the beginning of the book is all about that idea of handing things down and how I still sometimes, but used to much more worry about passing my trauma on to my children. Right, yeah. And how I could, you know, avoid that or work with that. Yeah, and and you, and you even mentioned in something in there that I think is just—it's like really touched me. Was was about how you doing your work changed that that dynamic with your children, even if they, you know, had problems they needed to work through and they weren't doing their work. Mm-hmm. You're doing your work really changed that. Absolutely, and that was absolutely true for me. And actually, that then illustrates what we were just talking about, this fluid plastic universe mm-hmm. where every everyone is responding and influencing. Right. So as I worked on myself and with the cranial work, you know, physiologically, emotionally, spiritually, that of course was going to influence the people I'm most connected with in this wonderful moving responsive system yeah. that we find ourselves in. And I literally did find that. So after that advanced one that we were talking about at the beginning, um, I remember going home and my whole relationship with my children had completely changed. Mm -hmm. And it took a while to kind of find out where it was. It felt a bit odd at first, but it was a very positive thing. 
And they, at that point, well, I'd done a little bit of work on them, but, you know, they they weren't that old. But it did change things, yeah. I've, I've, had, I've had that same experience, like coming home from a course and... And maybe it's just because I'm I'm sort of glowing in some way that they respond. <laughs> Who knows what it is exactly? But but I also feel like whenever whenever I'm doing this coursework and it's you know they're intensive for anybody who hasn't done some of the advanced work. You know it's a it's a it's a full forty fifty hour week of you know really being immersed in not only the you know the education of it but doing your own work at the same time. And so you know yeah. I feel like it's it's inevitable that you're going to go through working on your stuff or the relationship with your children or the relationship with your parents or whatever it is. Definitely, yeah. And so I always feel like I, when I come out of those those things just, you know, I, I feel like it, it creates a shift in the entire family somehow. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I don't think that's surprising. Right. You know, when you reflect from that, that bigger picture of you and your family and and then the universe and the people you're all in contact with and reflect that back in onto a cellular level, for example, into the enteric nervous system. Um, you know, when you study that and you realize how all these cells are so clever and intelligent and they're all having conversations with each other all the time mm-hmm. and making, you know, there's not one cell in charge of everything You've got the enteric neurons, the enteric glia, the, uh, the, the gut bacteria, the neuroendocrine cells, the immune cells in the gut. They're having these conversations all the time mm-hmm. and they're stimulating each other's activities and uh, they're making decisions together. And as it's the second brain, very often without referring to the brain in the head at all. Mm-hmm. But it's a constant, again, it's like we're describing it outside, um, a system which is responding, reflecting, um, influencing all the time and literally moment by moment. It's quite extraordinary. Right. And and yet there's also that just the cellular, I mean, I shouldn't say just the cellular because it is everything, <laughs> but uh, you, you use the example in the book of the, of the mice. And the cherry blossom experiment. So for, for anyone, I've, I've, I've seen this a few different times and every time I read it, I'm like, oh, it's, it's, uh, it's such a great example. So the, yeah. the, the, the mice are introduced to the smell of cherry blossoms and when they are, they're, they're shocked. And yeah. so, you know, they, they develop an aversion to the smell and then, you know, they're, they have children and when their children are introduced to the smell, they also, uh, you know, show the aversion to the smell bec- because of what's been passed on through, you know, yeah. cell, cells. And they found, didn't they, it went as far as it went two or three generations. Yes, yeah. And it was quite extraordinary, even when the other generations had never smelt cherry blossom before or been shocked. And, and there's been other experiments I've seen where it's carried on for like 12 generations. So yeah. that's as much as maybe has even been tested at this point. It could go, who knows how long it goes on for. Well, was one of those other ones that the little glowing worms, the nematodes. The worms, Yeah. Worms. So we could do it. We, the scientists, could do it for many generations because they have a short lifespan. Right, right. And they injected them with something that glowed in cold weather, I think it was. Yes, yeah. And so they put them into the cold and they glowed and then they took them out and they glowed for a bit longer. Anyway, they then 
if they did that enough with one generation, I think it went down that 12, that was the thing, wasn't it? 12 generations. Yeah, and, and, and they adjust the temperature somehow and they, they adapt somehow yeah. too through the, through the process. It was extraordinary. Yeah. I always think of them as being like little glowing Christmas tree worms. Yeah. It's just the visual picture. But yeah, and, and and you must you, know, you got to figure that you know we and I think you write a little bit about this in the book, but that you know with the, the there's so much I forget what you said seventy percent or eighty percent of our brain is is sensory processing, right? Yeah, and and so you know if if you think about the demands increasing in terms of processing, I'm sure our autonomic nervous system is having to adapt and make changes, and you know so, some of those things can happen fairly quickly generationally. Mm-hmm. But I, I still think that we're, you know, we're, we're still struggling to keep up with the rate right now at which things are going on, based on what I see in my practice anyway. And then with yeah, this past year, of course. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. You know, the, the stimulus and the rate at which things are firing at us is quite overwhelming. And some people are learning to take that time out and go for a walk, do their meditation, whatever, to balance that out. But there are a lot of people who maybe don't have the resources or feel under too much pressure. And I think it's a real struggle and it's creating a lot of ill health. Yeah. And I think uh, screens, I mean, we're on a screen now, but we wouldn't be able to do this without Zoom right. because you're in States and I'm here in near London. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we know that it's not great for our nervous system to be sitting in front of the screen for hours. It's okay right. for an hour or so now. Yeah. Which is, I, which I limit for the, for partly for that reason. Also, I just can't sit for that long of a period of time. No, <laughs> no nor can I. <laughs> Too much. So, yeah. so an, another concept that I think would be really helpful to, to talk about, which seems to be your expertise, um, based on having to recover from childhood trauma, which you can, you know, yeah. you can talk maybe a little bit about, you go into it in, in depth in the book, but is, is this felt sense of, of our inner world, which, which is, we call in, interoception. And, uh. and, and one of the things that I feel like I, I'm always kind of working. I mean, I've worked, done a lot of work on it myself and I have to continue to work on because, yeah. you know, it, it gets challenged and then you have to come back and find that, that center again. But to, if you could talk a little bit about, about that and the process of engaging that. Yeah, so that's, um, yeah, so interoception is um, one of our senses like sight, hearing, taste, touch. And it's all the, um, really the messages from all of the organs, all the squishy bits in our body to our brain, well, to all of our nervous system parts. Um, Again, it's pretty much about safety to give us a sense of what's happening inside interoception. So the thing with interoception is that um, if we become dissociated or really not embodied, or very stressed, we lose um, connection with with what's going on inside us, which is what you're saying. You know, sometimes it, it takes a time to get our breathing back, to ground ourselves, to notice what's going on in our body. And of course, craniosacral therapy and SER work is all about that connection yeah. in. Yeah. Um, and when we have trauma, of course, we lose that massively. Mm-hmm. 
we can really dissociate from that. So it's it's a really important thing that's going on. And, you know, I'm sure you have. I've had many people over the years who've come and laid on my treatment table and have no idea, you know, they've been through a lot. And so they they have no sensations that they can connect within their body. Mm-hmm. And you can put your hands on and you're feeling all this stuff going on. At the end, they say, they sit up and say, I don't feel anything. Yeah, I feel like, yeah. And then they try and stand up and they're like, whoa, what was that? Yeah. But yes, yeah, so I think interoception is really important. Yes, a lot of what our brain does, 80% is try and integrate all the messages from all our senses, from what we see, hear, touch, and also from what we get from inside the body. Mm-hmm. And that integration, that sensory integration is a huge part of its job. And that in a child or an adult, well, in a child growing up is fundamental to cognitive development, being able to read and write yeah. and, and do all those more grown-up things. So it's, it's a bottom line thing. And it's also when it's not integrating well, it's often as a result of stress and trauma. So sensory integration dysfunction is a stress disorder. It yeah. always is. Yeah. Whether that came from a difficult birth or from an accident when you were 50 in your car, all these things or emotional trauma can leave you with a sensory system that is not integrating well. You're not able to process things well. It's yeah. dysfunctional. Yeah. It's very uncomfortable, creates huge anxiety and huge problems in the gut. Yeah. When I had my scuba accident, I describe in the book, I had massive sensory integration problems after that. Mm-hmm. And it was really the beginning of your journey of realizing for just how long you, I mean, not. it sounds like you'd done some work before that, but but it really yeah. took you took you back further than than you probably even imagined it would. Oh, much more so, yes. And I think you know, there's a lot lot of reasons why. But I think most people who have some kind of post traumatic disorder um, are predisposed to that by things that have happened earlier in their life. So mm-hmm. their nervous system systems, all of it, is going to be already set up maybe with a bit less resilience. Maybe the ventral vagus complex isn't well-toned. I know mine wasn't. I know I was dissociated from a lot of stuff in my gut. And then this accident just kind of lit a bonfire under all of that. Right. And made everything like, oh, you know, and I even coin a phrase in the book called post-traumatic gut because that was the thing that nobody seem to understand or be able to help yeah with yeah and and you know the you you and i both have been fortunate enough to work with all ages and and you know one of the questions that that tad asked me when i when i interviewed him was what i what i learned from working with babies from newborns Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's a really great question and 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 one of the things I think I've I've come to learn is that I, I look at adults as, you know, as as young as I can possibly imagine them in some ways and kind of try to try to, you know, even it, it even forces me to ask more questions. It, get, it, it increases the curiosity of this person's whole experience. And there's something about acknowledging someone's whole experience that really starts to open things up. You you talked about you had such a great um, visual for 
um, babies. And I've seen this exact um, thing. You, 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 you talked about how, you know, the, as the baby started unwinding by the end of the session, he was lying on the table, table like a starfish. Which, yeah. which, is, which is exactly what happens. I, I've worked with a lot of these babies who have either had difficult births, they, ha- they have gut issues, they have torticollis or just, just a rigidity to them. And you can, in, with babies, you can almost just watch them sort of flow as if, as if the table's not even underneath them. They, and sometimes I, I am working with them, holding them too, but they just kind of move around until everything just lets go and you just see, the, mm-hmm. see them just open up completely. Absolutely. And uh, it's very wonderful working with babies because these patterns have not been around for very long in their body. Um, I think also um, it's a real challenge to your groundedness and ability to create a safe space because a baby will know immediately yeah, yes, if you're not will. grounded if your hands are not feeling safe. Yep, yep. You know, and I used to teach the pediatric classes for the Upledger Institute internationally until I created this class, the gut class. And um, the main thing I was teaching really was safety mm-hmm. in many different guises. Yeah. It's about how you meet that baby or child where they are at that moment and create safety and don't dive in and don't have an agenda and just hold that space and then they just do the work. Yeah, one of the one of the things that that you you brought up in in the book too that I that I was really made me yeah, I feel like I, it stuck around with me for like the entire day that I read this was you you had a question uh, um, something about whether whether or not this this um rigidity or stiffness that that you that you know, we we feel in the tissue, and that people hold on to, um, whether that has a, a long term impact, or, or whether it's clear that that is one of the factors of you know this lack of flow in tissue or lack of flow in systems might be the most important thing to address. I think fluid in the tissue is incredibly important. I think as soon as we have any level of challenge or stress or early trauma or whatever it might be, or an accident or an injury, wherever that tissue gets tight and the layers of fascia get stuck together and you don't have this wonderful, delicate web of connected tissue, which is fluid-filled, really, Mm -hmm. um, so it can glide and move and take all the good stuff to everything it surrounds, which is everything. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's very important. And and that, to me anyway, seems to go back into our idea of us being very fluid plastic beings in a fluid plastic universe. Yeah. And 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 how can we be, sorry, if, if um, if if we have that degree of tension and difficulty in our tissue? Yeah. And, and, and you, you, you said something in there about this, you know, if, if, we, if we have that, that resistance, you know, within the, that it's hard to feel the emotions, it's hard to feel love when, mm. we're, when we're, you know, it's like, it's like a, the metaphor is kind of like we, we don't have the flexibility to sort of move with this, this situation, which is what emotion is, then, mm. we can, then we don't get to have that experience. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and that's usually for a very good reason that, you know, the tissue has got tight for a good reason to protect us. Mm-hmm. Right. From 
emotional, physical pain, whatever, spiritual pain, whatever it might be. It's yeah. gone like, ah, you know, I'm going to protect you. Don't worry. You're not going to have to feel that again. <laughs> and, and, and that's great. You know, thank you very much, body. Yeah. But then we get to a place where we actually don't want to feel like that anymore. We would like to feel love and to be present and to be able to flow with things. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where we need to do the work. Yeah. And, and you, you left us with a, a few things at the end of this book, which I think would be a, a good way to wrap some of this up because it's like I, you did it very concisely and it's something that I, I think is, is very easy to kind of go through quickly. So mm. one of the things that you said was, you know, in terms of what we can do, one of them was to, to reflect on our emotional and mental, you know, states present and past. Mm. Uh, another one is to address lifestyle. Um, yeah. To to look at the food that we eat, to to build resources around us for responding to whatever these you know stressors or challenges are. Mm. Um, you suggested body workers, which I think you know what what body yeah. workers can do in terms of that softening or in terms of helping the flow states of the body. I think is is huge, and I. And, and, and one of the things that I, I really feel like we, I wish there was a little more, I mean, part of the reason I'm doing the podcast is to get some of this out there, obviously. Um, uh, but, but I, you know, I often get people led to me. It sounds like you do too, who are, especially kids who have like uh, sensory processing issues, ADD, ADHD, gut issues, usually yeah. multiple. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and the fact that parents are starting to sort of understand that we're available to help this process and, and just how open and, and I just had an eight-year-old yesterday who got done with the session, very, very high level ADHD, gut issues, food sensitivities, all this stuff, you know, at the end of the session said, when can I come back? Yes, <laughs> I know. It's wonderful. I right. have children like that. After their first session, the mother will say, well, would you like to come back? Yes. When would you like to come back? tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> right because their body responds it's like yeah hallelujah somebody's understanding and supporting yes yeah and, and you know and i think all these things it, in the end we need to empower people whatever age they are yeah yeah to know that they can do so much to help themselves yeah and hence the chapter at the end about going for a walk doing the things that you love Yes. Getting out in the fresh air. Don't eat the crap food, or at least not very often. Yeah. You know, all these things really make a difference because yeah. we are these fluid, responsive beings, and every cell will respond to those good things yeah. in a positive way. Yeah, and a couple other things you suggested were to you know to that to that point where you know spending quiet time. Yeah, you know, just just listening to you know what you what you notice coming through you, you know, whether it's in your in your body, thoughts, feelings, whatever it is, and and then you know trying to you know have some kind of kind of strategy at least to 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 slowly work on these things. This is one of the things I, I work on with people a lot of times is you can get very caught in this in this idea of um, that you're constantly trying to fix. Just fix, fix, fix all the time, yeah. and and that yeah. I think once once we get past it, for me, once we get past the extreme of the of the of the uh, the state that the person's in, you know, the, whatever the symptomatic part of it is, uh, th then I say, okay, let's let's space this out a little bit and start working on the things that 
that you can include into your life besides mm. me. Like I, I don't, I don't, you don't, you don't need me for all yeah. these other parts. I want you to find the things that, that are the, the joy that will be, that will be part of the healing. Yeah, completely. I do exactly the same. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not about them coming to me endlessly. It's about me getting to them to the place where they don't need to come and see me at all. There isn't any need there. Right. You know, they've, addressed much in their life their body's working better their mind yeah and they're looking at their lifestyle and making all those adjustments and if somebody comes to me and wants me to fix them I I do have to have a serious conversation with them and say that's not what I do because you have everything in you that you need I'm just here to support your discovery of that and and I think that you you said something else that in the book that I that I really uh, grabbed, which was you were saying this this post traumatic gut disorder. You wanted mm-hmm. to drop the disorder, and and I think it's there's yeah. there's something very important about really yeah. thinking about the language of some of these things of the yeah. of the syndromes and the disorders and the things that you know they yeah. they, they have such a negative charge, and and we attach ourselves to that mm-hmm. language. And, yes. and and that's that can also be almost kind of a mental construct that keeps us from healing. I think that's absolutely spot on because as soon as somebody says you've got a disorder, you become very attached, identified with right. that. And the whole word disorder immediately means that you're, something in you is not working very well, is broken or wrong. Yeah. And yeah, okay, you may not be functioning well, but... It's, it's very hard then to move away from that. So, yeah, I wanted to take disorder off and just have, yeah, okay, we've had trauma, post-trauma, post-traumatic gut, mm-hmm. post-traumatic anxiety, whatever it is that's going on. But you haven't, you're not disordered. You're a human being who's been through challenges and experience. Yeah. You are not less because of that. And I think this is still a big taboo and this is a real in my bonnet about this that (laughs) mental health issues are still something which a lot of people think make you less of a person yeah so for a long time I wouldn't let anybody know I had post-traumatic stress disorder because I felt they would think I was not capable of being a therapist or of doing this or of being in a relationship right because I had this thing or even if, you, even if you have a flare-up. Weak and less. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and that's not the case. Right. Yeah. So I, I really want to... And then when you add gut problems to that, then you're really in trouble. Yeah. So not only have you got a mental health issue, which means you're a bit pathetic in some way, but now you've got bowel problems, yeah. which nobody wants to talk about. Right, right. And, and as, so you've got double whammy. As therapists, I, I I was just I went and had a walk this morning with one of my acupuncturist friends, and and she's been she's had a very tough year with some health issues in in her family, which means that she's also had to you know go through a lot. And and we were talking about how when when we're not when 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 some of our stuff flares up, that is our tendency. Whether it's anxiety for me, I've had back and hip issues, um, and. We we feel we you know we we kind of have this imposter syndrome when we're going through those things because we still have our knowledge and our skill set and all of our experience to help people, but at the same time we're struggling a little bit with some of our yeah. stuff. You know that's that is 
you know, th that probably is our, our weak spot and every, everybody has those things. It doesn't mean we're, we're not healthy though. And this is one of the things, the reasons I, 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 I you know, chose the, the topic, the, or the, the, yeah. the name of the podcast. It was originally called health is dot, dot, dot. Cause I wanted people to kind of think about, you know, this is one of the things that came through in a lot of the work that I had done was really defining what health is, is so different for every single person. And, and, and it is about for the sort of the highway to health part of it was it is, it's about this journey and, sure. you know, you can, you can have any kind of condition, any challenge and still be, be working towards health, which is, you know, again, this, this starts to lead to maybe something that is a little bit more uh, spiritual in nature or, you know, some higher, higher self kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I was going to say something intelligent as response to that, but I got caught up in what you said. Uh, we, we, we were talking about your, you know, the things that we go through as, as, as you know, with our experience and feeling like maybe. Yeah, we're... and and sometimes, you know, um, one of the instructors who taught me on the pediatrics actually said, you know, what we used to teach that you must leave all your like tricky bits outside the door. But now we don't look at it that way. You bring yeah. all of you to the table. Agreed. And then actually people like the fact that I'm a human being, believe mm -hmm. it or not. Yeah. They don't feel that I'm this perfectly um, sorted together person who's dealt with everything and has no emotional challenge anymore. Yeah. And that actually could be really intimidating. So I think as long as we're aware of um, what's going on with us so we don't then dump it on that poor person or respond badly in the treatment or something because yeah, yeah. how we're feeling it can be really helpful to present as a human being yeah I, I agree and it's and it gets back to that whole bit about the guru and the and this this, this is this power thing to, yeah. and it, and, it, and it, it's one of the things I, I like to see uh, breaking down in the allopathic world as well and I've and a lot of the conversations I have lately with some of people that I'm colleagues with, they want to let go of some of that stuff too. They of mm. of of having to know the exact diagnosis, of having to know the exact condition. Everything yeah. everything exists a little bit in a spectrum, and 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 yeah. there's also yeah. layers and overlapping pieces that we we need we need to have a little more flexibility with. Absolutely, and I think I put in the end of the book that interesting piece of research saying that um, the medical community needs to do exactly that is to not talk about a definite diagnosis, mm -hmm. but but be open about an evolving journey towards discovering what's going to help and what's going yes. on. Agreed. Agreed. And, um, it may take them a while to get there because they've got a big history of, of things being much more black and white. Yeah. And certainly the way the insurance uh, system works in the U.S. Yeah. is making it very difficult. So. Yeah, sure. Yeah, because you have to tick a box, don't you, too? Yeah. Yes. I think even though we don't have that here, we still have that same thing that a consultant or doctor would feel they have to give you a definite, clear-cut word. Yes. It's it's a bit ego, too, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it can be. And, and, but and, all the really good ones that I know are not like that. They're right. much more open. And it's one thing I appreciate so much about Upledger Institute's educators which you are one, is that I always feel that from them. And it's been such a, you know, that's been one of the big gifts for me 
you know, because these are my models, you know, you, you guys, the, you know, thinking about how I want to be as a, as a practitioner, I'm really looking to to a certain model of, of behavior, which has, you know, from the, I've been, I've been doing it for almost 25 years and to, and to see one educator after another with that same skill set is, is kind of, you know, one of the most profound things I've seen. Wow. Yeah. I've, I mean, when I was studying myself, I was blown away by my instructors. Yeah. And um, it took me a long time to see myself as part of that group. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I still think, you know, like Tad's just amazing and, and all of them are fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just wonderful to learn from them and be with them. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to taking your course at some point. And uh, whenever you make it to the States, or if, if I can make it over there, we'll, we'll see what happens. Absolutely. Well, I hope by next year I'll be able to travel more easily. Yeah. So I'm doing it virtually, but it's not quite the same. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm much more of an in-person uh, learner. Yeah. But that's not to say I, I don't tune into some of these things just because I, I need to have a little bit of the, the reminding as well. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I know you've, you've got a lot going on. And um, for, for anyone interested in, in reading the book, I'm, I'm going to have it up on, uh, there'll be a link on the show notes for the podcast on the, whatever app you're listening on. Um, but you also, the, it'll, it'll be on the uploader.com website. And do you have a, also a, a personal website? I do. So for anybody in Europe or the UK, mm-hmm. um, it's probably cheaper shipping wise. And so mine is www.nikkikenward.store. Okay. S-E-O-R-E. And then it's very easy to buy from that. Yeah. Okay. That sounds good. And, and I'll throw that up on, on the show notes then yeah, for, for people too. All right, Nikki, thanks so much. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Nikki Kenward. I hope this has given you some insight into what our gut does for us and why its health is critical to our overall state of wellness. One of the most important aspects to treatment that Dr. John Epledger gave to us is to acknowledge a person's whole experience when we treat them. This includes not just their current state and symptoms, but a person's entire life experience. In Nikki's case, you cannot separate what happened in her childhood or in her diving accident from what she was experiencing when her acute gut issues started to become chronic. What she and I have both been witness to in our work as craniosacral therapists is that bringing the system back into balance is possible. Nikki goes into much more detail on this in her book and offers a number of practical strategies for improving the gut's function. See the show notes for links to the book if you'd like to purchase it, and you can also find it on our website, highway2.health. Curious to know what you thought of this conversation, especially if you've struggled with gut issues or if you're in a health field that treats GI challenges. You can always reach us through our contact page on the same website, highway2.health. That's highwayto.health. And if you'd like to watch me have this conversation with Nikki, check out and subscribe to our Highway to Health podcast channel on YouTube. Thanks for listening and for all that you do. Be good to yourself, be kind to each other, and take care of your planet. Be well, my friends. If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. 
For example, Nurse Wellness Podcast, hosted by Wendy Garvin Mayo, focuses on the power of stress management and how it's foundational to being your best, doing your best, and giving your best. There's a wonderful episode that you should check out called Letting Go, where Wendy Garvin Mayo shares six strategies to release control and manage stress effectively. Check out Nurse Wellness Podcast on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.